Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the Psalms. I'll continue reading from Psalm 29. And our New Testament reading will be from the Epistle of Romans. Psalm 29, picking up at verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And from Romans chapter 4. Romans 4, 13. Beautiful passage that easily helps us draw the line from Abraham to Jesus. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me? Lord, may we be granted the gift of life today, that we would hear your words not as dead people, but as living people, and may we bear the fruit of it. Gather us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. For the next few months, we're going to go back to the Old Testament, uh, back, in fact, to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and back to some of the various early, very earliest chapters of that book. We're going to spend some time in the Toledeth of Terah. 
you remember a number of, uh, about a year and a half ago, we spent some time uh, in the Toledeth of Jacob, which was about the story of uh, Joseph. And here we're going to be thinking about how Abraham came from the line of Terah and the place that he has in not only biblical history, but only also in our own lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Abraham in and of itself is not a really common name. You don't find a lot of people that are named Abraham today. Uh, in fact, uh, in I think in North America, it's um, numbers in about uh, the hundreds of names that are picked. Um, uh, over in Europe, uh, it's about four hundredth down the list. Uh, so there's not a great chance that you're going to be named Abraham in the day in which we live. Some of you who are listening today might actually say, Abraham? Don't know anybody called Abraham. Kind of a strange name to me. Uh, some might say, Abraham, well, of course I know Abraham, Abraham Lincoln. And uh, that's true, Abraham Lincoln was named Abraham. Some of the kids, uh, and parents, you might um, forgive me later for this, but kids might have grown up in Sunday school singing a little song called Father Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, and then you go right arm, left arm, no, right arm, left arm, Right foot, left foot, chin up, spin around, and you'd sing it all over again. And so some of you might be very familiar with that song, Father Abraham. Others of you uh, may be familiar with uh, the Abraham that's referenced in the Bible. And you might say, well, I know Abraham. Uh, he's that guy in the Bible who was, let's say, asked to sacrifice his son. Or others might say, well, that's the guy who lied about his wife being his sister. Or that's the guy whose wife was childless and barren. Whatever we think about Abraham, I suspect the vast majority of Christian thinking, though, begins with the Abraham of Genesis chapter 12. With the Abraham who obeyed the call of God and put his faith in the promise of God and obeyed God, and that was counted to him as righteousness. And then the rest of what the Bible tells us about Abraham. I think what we do, though, when we do that is our recollections of Abraham then begin when he was 75 years old. And as I was thinking about this series and getting ready for it, I thought, well, what about the first 75 years? That's a lot of Abraham's life. Abraham lived to be 175 years old, and so that's close to half his life um, we maybe don't think about or don't give a lot of attention to. But the early years of our life, as all of us would know, have an influence on who we are. They shape us. They, they, they determine a lot about us. They don't necessarily have to determine what we will be, but they can influence that. They direct our choices. They certainly dictate the homes and the environments in which we grew up in. Abraham's first 75 years are instructive. And personally, as I've been wrestling through those 75 years again, I've found it helpful and encouraging in my own life. And so today I've arranged my thinking, or at least what I think are the biblical words about his first 70 year, 75 years around three points. First, the world that Abraham came into. Secondly, the family that Abraham was born into. And thirdly, the God that Abraham was drawn into. So the first thing, when we think about the world that Abraham was drawn into, you get a picture of the world that he was drawn into by reading Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 11. That was the history of the world, and Abraham was born early in the history of the world. It's not a long history, but it's a significant history. 
And in Genesis chapter 1 to 11, we have the biblical account of the early history of all of mankind and of humankind. It would be right to say that this is the history of the world or the history of the world before Israel ever existed. And I've been wrestling with an observation of uh, Daryl Johnson uh, that Genesis 1 to 11 is really the first half of the Bible, where Genesis chapter 12 to the end of Revelation is the second half of the Bible. And he comes to this conclusion by noting that at the end of chapter 11, there's a reference to God coming down as they look upon the disobedience of the people in Babel. Uh, God comes down, he says, let's go down and see them. And we understand as God comes down, it's a coming down in judgment. But then after that fact, for the rest of history, until we get to Jesus, Jesus comes down again. But he doesn't just sort of come down and observe. He actually comes all the way down to earth. He comes down to us in the human form. He takes on flesh. It's the incarnation. It's the divine response to our sinfulness. The Lord came all the way down, and we could say something like, Jesus is the Lord come down. In other words, the second half of the Bible is about heaven's descent, heaven's human descent, all the way down, bringing grace and mercy to those in desperate need of it. And so salvation properly, or salvation history, begins with Abraham. It's, it's a profound history, and it's a way that we understand the Bible, that the Bible is primarily salvation history, how God works in humankind in physical realities to bring about spiritual transformation in life. So this world that Abraham came into, it was a morally dark world. It was a chaotic world. The first chapters of Genesis describe three critical crisis events that took place in the early world. And these events would have been part of the collective human recollection of their history and the environment in which they live. And in fact, you find this when you study the myths of ancient cultures that have been uncovered over time, that, that there's references to creation and to the fall in particular, and to the flood. And, but what the biblical account adds, which all the other accounts leave out, is the spiritual and the theological context of the fall and the flood and of Babel. And so we have these events that took place in the world that preceded Abraham, not by that great a distance. We have the crisis of the fall, which you find in Genesis chapter 3. We have the crisis of the flood, which you find in Genesis chapter 6 to 8. And you have the crisis of the tower, which you find in Genesis chapter 11. All of these which, which describe for us a world that is pleased to live without God's intervention in their lives, without submitting to God's kingship or authority, without desiring his fellowship. And therefore, it's a world that we find cursed after the fall. It's a world that we find destroyed after the flood. And it's a world that we find scattered by God after the Tower of Babel. It's almost like this three strikes and you're out scenario. And the rebellion at the Tower of Babel is the third strike. And then we, therefore, we should expect the end to come. We should expect, well, humankind is done. The judge should appear. The world, as, as it was known there, God's world, because he made it, the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, could justifiably be totally destroyed once and for all. 
And we think to ourselves, well, why does God give this world that mocks him, that defies him, that rejects him a second thought or a third thought? It's really unexplainable. And if you have time this afternoon or throughout this week, read Genesis chapter 1 to 11 again. And, and try and ask yourself, why is it that God is tolerant of such disobedience and rebellion? So this is the world that Abraham came into. It, it helps to just form that picture in our minds. It's a world of chaos. It's a world characterized by rebellion. It's a world full of idolatry. It's a pagan, godless culture. And think this through just a little bit. This is the world that shaped Abraham. This is the world that molded his first 75 years, so to speak. This is the context in which Abraham was raised. This is the threat under which Abraham lives of the judgment of God. And we might rightly conclude as we work that through, well, what chance does Abraham have of ever connecting with God? What chance does Abraham ever have of being brought back into fellowship with God who made the heavens and the earth and all of mankind? We might very, um, uh, very easily change the words of uh, uh, the songwriter from this is my father's world to this is the devil's world. And we would be accurate in describing it that way. And as I thought about that, I thought, was that not a description of the world that we live in today? The world that you and I are a part of. The world in which we bring our children into or our grandchildren come into. It's a world that is characterized by sin and rampant rebellion against God. Defiance towards God. Ignorance of his word and in fact a downright rejection of his word. There's rampant idolatry all around the world in which we live. And men and women are constantly trying to make names for themselves. It's a world that we could easily characterize as godless or as pagan. And sometimes we do. We, 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 when, we, when we forget about God or when the, the world squeezes God out of our thinking, there's a desperation that rises in us. How are our children ever going to make it? How are our grandchildren ever going to make it in this world in which we live? And as we think about it, the world in which we live presently is also under the threat of judgment. And the pattern of grace and rebellion and judgment that's so obvious in the first 11 chapters of Genesis looms over the world in which we live today. Not only will each and every one of us stand before God, but the world as we know it is going to come to an end by the hand of God. It's not going to come to an end by any virus. It's not going to come to an end by another flood. It's going to not come to the end by an ice age that takes over. It's going to come to an end by the very hand of God. And Peter succinctly tells us about that. He says, but the day of the Lord, that's the day when, when God comes back to judge the world. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Just as the flood came as a surprise to all the world that was in rampant sin and rebellion, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be exposed, and the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. There is a coming destruction on the world in which we live. Not because it's a wonderful place. 
but it's a place that is not unlike the world into which Abraham was born. And were we reading the story of Abraham and hearing it for the first time, we might conclude, well, his situation is hopeless. There's no, there's no chance that he's going to ever find the God who made the heavens and the earth. He's dead in his trespasses and sins. He's spiritually dead. He's been following the course of the world around him, following the passions of his flesh, carrying out the desires of his body and, and, and the mind. And, the, and by nature, he's a child of wrath and he's without God in the world. It's a dark place. How does one find light in darkness? Abraham was born into a dark world. But what about the family that Abraham was born in? For most people, knowledge of their family history matters. But not just their immediate family, but their roots. Some like to try and trace their roots back as far as they can. Others would do anything to know who their parents even were. What is our family lineage? Where, what country did we come from? Is there any genetic deficiencies in me? Many people are anxious to know those things. And so while a family does not have to define and determine who we will be or who we will become, it clearly has a part or influence in shaping who we were and can exert a shaping pressure on us as we grow older. So what are the significant shaping factors in Abraham's first 75 years? Well, it's fascinating that the family lineage of Abraham can be traced back through Shem, who is one of the three sons of Noah. Shem, in fact, was alive when Abraham was born. I don't know if we think about that, but Shem, who survived the flood with his brothers and his wife and his mother and father, was alive when Abraham was born. The Babel instance, the, the tower and the judgment that came upon the world maybe happened a few hundred years earlier than when Abraham came into the world. And a few hundred years before that was the flood. See, just as Noah was the tenth from the line of Adam, so Abraham was the tenth in the line of Shem. You wonder if he was acquainted with the stories of, of creation and of the flood and of Babel. I'm sure he was because history was passed on verbally. Whether he ever had any connection with Shem, I don't know. But certainly that was his family line. Abraham's father was Terah, a descendant of the line of Seth, the godly line in which God would work out salvation for the world. And so through his father Terah, Abraham could trace his family back to Noah and all the way back to Adam. It's astounding to sort of think that through. We often don't just spend time and think about these kinds of things. And then Moses picks up the account of Abraham's family in verse 27 of chapter 11, where he says, now these are the generations of Terah. Just in passing, I, I just want to mention that to you. These are the generations is a significant phrase in the whole book of Genesis. In fact, it, it's what is often used to divide the structure or to, to give the structure to the whole book of Genesis. The Hebrew word toledeth means this is where it all started from or this is what became of. 
It's a phrase that's used 11 times in the book of Genesis. The first time is after the, the account of creation when there was nothing. And in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 it says these are the generations of the heaven and earth. This is what became of the heaven and earth. And then it goes through and we have these are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Seth. And now we are in the family line of Terah. And we will cover from uh, chapter 11, verse 27, all the way to Genesis chapter 25, verse 11. This is what happened to the family line that came from Terah. So this is the text then, which helps us understand some of the family of Abraham in Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 to 32. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, the Earl Ur of Chaldeans. And Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishka. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abraham his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law his, his son Abraham's wife and they went forth from the Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Here in these few short verses, we have the details of the migration of a, an obscure family from Mesopotamia that moved from Ur to Haran. So what does it tell us about Abraham's family? Well, it tells us his dad's name was Terah. Terah had three boys. Abraham, who was probably born around 2000 BC, Nahor, and Haran, who was probably the oldest of the three. So he had three brothers. Fascinating that Noah had three sons. Terah has three sons. Haran had a son, Lot, who we will hear a lot about in the coming weeks. And then tragedy struck. Nothing is told of the tragedy. All we know is that their family was rocked by the death of one of the boys, Haran. It said he died in the presence of his father. That in itself is a fascinating statement, a, a phrase that you don't just want to run over, but it seems to imply that uh, Terah was there in the presence of Haran when he died. Obviously, Haran was old enough at that point to have be, been married and have had fathered at least three children. And likely he was much older than his other brothers, Abraham and Nahor. Because Nahor married one of Haran's daughters, Milcah. Told that the family started out in Ur of Chaldeans. Well, what do we know about Ur? Ur is not some primitive city. I think sometimes we have in our minds that those who lived, you know, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, four thousand years ago, they really lived primitively compared to us. But we, we, we learn stuff about the Mayan culture, the Egyptian culture, the ancient Babylonian culture. And what we see, we're just amazed by the way that they lived and the culture that they lived in and the homes that they lived in. For many years, Ur was thought to be a mythical city. It wasn't until the early 1900s when under the direction of the British Museum, they went to excavate a tell. 
And a city that laid bird there was soon discovered to be the Ur of Chaldeas. They never knew it existed until they dug up um, cylinders, cuneiform cylinders that had written on it the city name, which was the Ur of the Chaldees. Those cylinders were found in a temple site under a ziggurat, one of the uh, ancient sort of wonders of the world. It was this massive temple structure that was built in the city of Ur. The city uh, comprised of at least 60 acres with a wall all the way around the city. The population at one time was described as having over 200,000 people. There were a number of residential cities or, or residential neighborhoods that have been uncovered as they've uncovered this tell. And the homes have been homes with courtyards and with two or more living rooms and with bedrooms and with domestic chapels and, 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 and cult structures and family vaults for those that passed away that would have been part of the burial within the home. These homes had kitchens and they had lavatories. These weren't just primitive structures. These were, these were well-built cities and designed neighborhoods. Outside of the city, they've uncovered a royal cemetery that had over 1,800 graves, 16 of which were royal tombs, which they have discovered incredible treasures and incredible artifacts about that period of time. It was a city that was prominent for its worship of a moon god, Nana, it was a vibrant port city at that time, at the tip of the Persian Gulf. And it was into that kind of city, that kind of high culture, that kind of bustling place in which Abraham's family first originated from. We learn a little bit more about Abraham now. Abraham and his brother Nahor married. Abraham married Sarai. Nahor married one of the daughters of Haran, the brother who had passed away. This might explain why Lot went to live with Abraham. He was an orphan. He had no family. And so when his father died, Abraham took him under his wings. The point is really made clear about Sarah. Sarai. Not only does it say she was barren, but she had no child. It's unmistakable that she could not have children. At a certain point in Abraham's life, Terah decided to move to Haran, a city with a similar name. It's not the exact name, but of his son that had died. He left Nahor and his family back in Ur, and he took Abraham, Sarai, and Lot, and they settled in Haran. I think it's helpful to have a visual. I don't know if you'll all be able to see this visual very well, but there's a a map which I think is helpful in understanding a little bit of the movement of Abraham. Down in the bottom right of this map, at the tip of the Persian Gulf, is Ur. You can see the little ziggurat down in that right-hand corner. If you go up to the top center of the map, you have Haran. It's about 900 kilometers away from Ur. That's a long, long way away. And the whole area, you can see it in there, green with the mountains, is, is, is between the two great rivers, Euphrates and the Tigris. And this whole area was known as the Fertile Crescent, or Mesopotamia. And it was here in Haran that it appears Abraham established himself. So much so that when God called him to Canaan, we read that he gathered all the possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired, and they set out. And we get some idea maybe of the size of Abraham's household. 
when a little bit later we'll, we'll look at the incident where he goes to rescue his nephew Lot, who had been taken captive. And it says that Abraham led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. Abraham had prospered well in Haran. His possessions had grown. His family had grown. His, his slaves had grown. And so the picture then we have of Abraham and the family that he comes from is this is a family of the world. Abraham is a man of the world. He knew suffering. He, he knew the loss of a brother. He knew tragedy. He had been successful in spite of all these things. He was a family man. He was loyal to his barren wife. He took his orphan nephew Lot into his home and he stayed with his father until his father died. But there's one more piece of information that we need to understand about Abraham and the family that he was born into. It's found in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. This tells us something about Abraham. He was an idol worshiper. He served other gods, numerous gods that were all over the, uh, the, the, the area and the region, the main one being the moon god. Abraham was cultured. He was wealthy. He was childless. But he himself was also a pagan worshiper of foreign gods. For the first 75 years of his life, he lived for himself. His background was anything but one in fellowship or relationship with the God who had created the world and all that was in it. And I think we need to hear this today again. It's, it's important to hear about the first 75 years of Abraham. Because there are some people, no doubt, who may be listening or are here today, have lived a good part of their lives pursuing the things of the world around them, worshiping anything but God. They come from a home that was wealthy, a home that was well set, maybe a home that was full of a idolatry. And, and you might wonder to yourself, well, am I doomed? Has my background sealed my fate? Is there no hope for me? Is my heart so hard that it can never be softened by grace? Has God passed me by? Will he overlook me because of the first half of my year or the first more than a third of my year has been spent living for myself? Or as the song said, years I spent in vanity and pride? Is there more to life than what I've experienced so far? Is there anything more? Is there some meaning or purpose to life? I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. But it's important that we understand that God is a God of mercy. And God is a God of grace. And God is a God who offers us hope. God is a God who can call us out of darkness and into his marvelous life. God is a God who's committed to transforming us. God is a God in which our past has no barrier to his ability to save us and make us into the likeness of his son. Your background doesn't mean that you are irreversibly beyond help. The biblical truth is that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The truth is that there is no one righteous, no, not one. The biblical truth is that our latter years can be more glorious and more fulfilling and more wonderful than our earlier years. I don't know about you and your background, 
But I do believe in the power of God to transform us. I don't know what you've believed or who you've worshipped or the idols that are in your life maybe up to this day. But I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for anyone who will believe in Jesus Christ. And the Bible would say, look to Jesus and be saved. Look to Jesus and find reconciliation with God. Look to Jesus and gain access to the God who created you and made you in his image. We look at the early years of Abraham and we're amazed that God does just not discard him. That God does not set him on the shelf. But no, God works with Abraham where he is and begins this amazing transformation in his life. So we know something of the world into which Abraham was born, a dark, chaotic, godless world. We know something of the family in which Abraham was born, probably a, a wealthy family, but a family that knew difficulties, a family that knew tragedy, a family that had traversed 900 kilometers from one city to another city, a family that was steeped in their own idolatry. But what do we know about the God Abraham was drawn into? See, for the most part, if we just stopped there, all we would see is a, a man through a human lens. Well, this was his father, and these were his brothers, and this was his wife, and this is where he lived, and that's where he moved to. I mean, that's all there is to life. Life is only human. It's, there, there is nothing beyond the human. But, but Joshua introduces us to maybe a reality that's beyond that, that they worshipped idols. They had this inkling inside of them that there was more than just what the eyes could see. I've often quoted the words of Augustine, and I will again. He says, the heart of man is restless until, it's, he, until it finds its rest in God. So what about the God to which Abraham was drawn into? Well, in Genesis chapter 11, verse 31, we read there that Terah took Abraham his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law his son Abraham's wife and they went forth to the Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. And you might say pretty clear, isn't it? Terah just decided one day, maybe circumstances came into his life and he says, we're out of here family, pack up, get everything on the camels, put everything on the donkeys, we're headed out of here and we're headed to Haran and maybe off to Canaan. Now, in the face of this, not only is this Tara's decision, but it seems like an absurd decision when you actually think about it. Ur was in the cradle of civilization. Ur was in the fertile crescent. Mesopotamia is someplace you go to, not someplace you leave from. So we might say, Tara, why? Explain what went on in your thinking that you decided one day that you're going to move from Ur to Haran. Well, on the one hand, we would simply say, well, terror was doing what people do. They just make decisions. Circumstances of their life shape them. They respond to those circumstances and they go. On the other hand, though, there's the divine side of life. There's the providence of God. There's the plan and purposes of God. There's the imminence of God in our world in general and in our lives in particular. And I think this is how the scripture spreads a little bit of light on the divine leading in the life of Abraham, even when he was a pagan. For behind 
The decision of Terah to move from Ur to Haran was the invisible hand of God. One was simply the reality of the judgment of God. Terah was caught up in the great dispersal. He might not have known it. He might not have understood it. But you remember when God came down in judgment on Babel, what did he say? I'm going to disperse the peoples around the world. And how did he do it? By confusing their languages. And so maybe, maybe Terah was caught up in that and he just realized this is so hard to live in Ur. I can't understand what's going on. I can't do business anymore. And so just by the judgment of God, God pushed him out of Ur into Haran. And there's more. Some of you might have read Acts chapter 7 verse 2. If you knew we were going to come to Abraham. And there it's the start of Stephen's speech to the leaders just before he was murdered by them. And he says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. I think, what? I thought it was Terah that decided to move from Ur to Haran. And now you're saying the God of glory appeared to Abraham while he was in Ur. It's fascinating to me that that phrase, God of glory, is found only one other place, and that's in Psalm 29, which we read today. It's also fascinating to me that seven times in that psalm, the voice of the Lord is described as motivating or moving things. And so as we think of Abraham in Haran, I can't tell you specifically, and the Bible doesn't tell us, how the God of glory appeared to Abraham. But I do understand, I think, what's going on here. What Stephen is referring to is the governance of God over the, 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 the priority of the divine sphere over the human sphere. And God is able to direct our thoughts. God is able to direct the actions of other people. He is able to guide and direct our lives by decisions that we make that he's ordained. Me made that move us one way or move us another way. God can direct our hearts and thoughts through marriage. He can move us through the loss of a job. He can move us through the need of a family. Very often we don't perceive the God of glory at work in our physical lives and never is our free will compromised and our decisions are always entirely our own and yet it's the circumstances of God's creating and arranging that lead and guide our lives. God gives dreams. God plants thoughts. You can go and read the, 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 the biblical story of Esther. You can go and reread the story of Joseph, and you will see how God, without ever being mentioned, directs and, and shapes the direction of the whole world. We find this reiterated by Paul so clearly in the book of Acts. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it. That is so important for us to think about. This world didn't just happen to be. God spoke it into existence. And then it says, being Lord of heaven and earth. That means God is in charge of it. God is in control of it. God is in authority over it. God determines what happens in heavens and on earth. It says, he doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind. From Adam 
came every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And then note this, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God knows exactly when we will be born. God knows exactly where we will be born. God knows exactly where we will move to and where we will live. And why does he know all that? And why does he ordain all of that? So that we should seek him and perhaps find our way towards him and find him. In other words, God has arranged the circumstances of your life, even though you might be rebelling against God, even though you might nothing, want nothing to do with God, he's arranging those circumstances so that you might find him. And so that you might be drawn into his family. Nehemiah captures the same interaction between earth and heaven, between natural and spiritual, when he prays, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur. Well, how did God do it? Well, he moved in Terah's heart to say, family, we're packing up and we're going to Haran. See, behind the decision of Terah to bring his family to Haran was the purpose of God. No accidents, no missteps, rather awe and wonder and worship. So again, I come back to you today, all of us today. You might not acknowledge the hand of God in your life. You may not see God at work in your life. You may live as though God has got nothing to do with you and you are in control and you are calling all the shots. And you determine where you will live and you determine who you will marry and you determine where you will go and all these kinds of things. But there is a divine reality to life. There is a God who is on the throne who superintends and guides and directs not only the world but all those that are in the world. There's a God who made the world and everything in it, a holy God, a righteous God, a loving God, a God who has, by the circumstances of your life, giving you everything you need to seek him and find him. Will you not look to him today? Will you not acknowledge his hidden, invisible hand in your life and say, this is just so much more than coincidence. This is just so much more than decisions of my own choosing and making. And so as we think about Abraham and we think about his first 75 years, as we think about our context in the world in which we live, our world may be a dark and chaotic place, but it's God who reigns over it. And it's God who is able to call us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Don't despair, either for yourself or for your loved ones, or your neighbors. Secondly, your family background may be a mess. Pain, rebellion, selfishness, living without thought of God at all in your home. Such a background, though, here there's such a background is not a black mark against you. God's grace and mercy run deeper than even the darkest of backgrounds and lives of rebellion. The blood of Christ is able to blot out any stain. Thirdly, your life may be made up of multiple decisions, yours and others. But hear me when I say those were all in the hand of God. And he has worked in such a way so that you uniquely might sense his nearness. 
hear his voice and call out to him for help. I'm so thankful that God is not ashamed or embarrassed of our backgrounds. Neither is his power neutered by anything we might have done or might have done to this point. But rather he simply says, come to me. Put your trust in my promises. Put faith in Jesus Christ and I will make something amazing out of you and give you eternal life. Father, we thank you as we reflect on your way with us. I'm amazed, Father, as I think about this world that there is so much more going on in this world than meets the eye. I'm thankful for that. Father, would you reaffirm in all of our hearts and lives today that truth that the physical natural world is not all that there is and father for some of us who have walked with you for many many years now would you help us maybe to maybe take a few minutes today or sometime and reflect on our early years and once again be filled with wonder and awe that you called us out of darkness into light and made us your daughter or your son. And Father, I do pray for anyone listening today who maybe right now you are just jolting them and they're reflecting on their background and they are afraid, ashamed, defiant. Father, would you soften their hearts? Would you open their ears? Would you point them to Christ, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.